I think fantasy is better. I like death and mayhem. What did you just say? Romance sucks puppies. Oh my Mom, this goodness. is a family-friendly <laughs> podcast. Oh. Puppies toes. <laughs> to the book is better podcast uh we are a family of four who typically review book to film adaptations today however we are going to do something a little different Mm -hmm. uh so before i tell you exactly what we're going to do let's go ahead and do a fun fact about ourselves and i think today's fun fact is going to be if you were going to write a book what would that book be about And so I will start. I've thought about a lot of different books. I hate nonfiction, so I'd probably want to write a fictional book. (laughs) But every time I've come up with a concept, I just realize that it's just another concept from a book I've already read uh, repackaged. So if we're being honest, I would probably write something that is like a combination of Twilight and the Hunger Games and Harry Potter and the Circle series by Ted Decker, because those are like the four things I go back to and like the the concepts that I like. I do like stuff with aliens, so I would kind of want to do something a la aliens and vampires. You Put know what I mean? Like that kind of that vibe. So oh, you, okay. You just described the first Suicide Squad Suicide Squad movie. I'm not Dang it! Make any more. <laughs> Every time. Oh, I'm Rebecca. I did. I'm so sorry. I forgot to say my name. Okay, I'm Rebecca. Go ahead. Uh, I'm Donna. I'm the wife slash mom of this amazing group, and I've started to write a few times. Gotten to a certain point, and. I've wondered before if I have a adult ADHD because mm-hmm. I will get so I'll have an idea, but maybe I don't flesh out enough, but I would write about um, something personal to me. Like I wanted to write a book about forgiveness and my journey of forgiving and how it was a struggle. It was a, you know, specifically is forgiving my dad when I was young uh, because I just had, a lot of issues with him and I had this thing all mapped out, but the more I looked at it, it got bigger because I could go back into my family's history and back into mom and dad's history and stuff like that. And so I kind of got stuck and didn't know where to go. And instead of plotting through it to get past that, I would stop. So the two things I've, I've tried to do like that have been, some something personal, some personal, um, not dilemma, but, but like from a spiritual aspect, you know, dealing with God's forgiveness and him helping me to forgive. And so I suppose I kind of go toward nonfiction. Um, Mm. the word today is not self-help. I think there's a better, there's another word that we are using in general for that kind of personal book. development, um, personal, personal development. development. Um, so it's kind like of that. that, I think I would, that's where I've been so far. Let me say it that way. Well, 
Uh, my name's Tim. I am the husband and dad of this wonderful group. And I have actually uh, written, I've written quite a few sh- short stories. Nice. But as far as writing a novel, I have I have some ideas for one and I've I've put a lot of it down on paper, but I haven't I haven't really jumped into to writing. I've got outlines and character developments and things like that. But it is uh, historical fiction. So it is fictional, uh, but it uh, it follows real history and incorporates some uh, real history and real people from history into this fictional story. Hmm. Um, I've also I also I did start writing uh, science fiction um, with you know exploring other planets and things, and it was a it was a spiritual journey is is what that one was. So how about how about you, Josiah? Oh, little old me. Well, if I had to write another book after <laughs> this series that we might talk about a little today, my next idea for a book, my favorite one right now, is a sci-fi horror comedy. Hmm. Um, oh, okay. that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. maybe maybe uh, taking a Stephen King atmosphere and adding a little more sci-fi to it than supernatural so that's kind of my next idea but my uh, current current idea i've been writing books about a fantasy setting in a fictional world uh, about nation building and uh, international relationships on a medieval scale and uh, there's a little bit of magic in there a little bit of intrigue a little bit of romance but not an amount that sucks pond scum the right amount so that's the reveal we're talking about the heirs of history book one a nation from nothing ta-da author by t josiah haynes which is me i'm josiah and i have written two books now i'm editing the third I, i really just need to get the book cover solidified and i'm as of the recording, I'm 75% done with the fourth book. I will say, dear listener, we didn't tell you because we wanted it to be a little bit of a surprise, assuming you haven't like looked at the title of this episode, yeah, which title. I didn't think about until just now. Oh my but gosh. we are going to be talking to Josiah about being an author, the book that he wrote. We're going to find out about what it's about, how he writes, how he develops things and and all sorts of stuff. So this episode might contain mild spoilers for his book, but we think you should read it. And so we're trying to, you know, get you into it. And especially we read it before about, it becomes a movie. I was about to say how right. it might uh, change to become a film. So, Josiah, would you tell us about the synopsis of your book? Oh, yeah. With all course. the spoilers that you want to give. <laughs> yeah, I would probably keep like the major end of book spoilers, but I don't mind like telling you what happens for most of the book, especially like as far as the structure and everything. But here's what's on the back of the book. Uh, the back of the book says the sun rises in the West and sets in the East, shining down on hundreds of rebels who flee from the unholy King and his false priests black-robed sorcerers who have reawakened ancient forbidden texts. These rebels sail north and land upon a virgin shore where they are forced to build a nation from nothing. 
Once allies against the unholy king, various rebel factions hold opposing beliefs about how best to establish a civilization that stands the test of time. Through military might, through religious zealotry, or rejecting both, everyone is willing to fight for their own ideas. The unholy king may be searching for them. Foreign neighbors may appear on their unsecured border at any hour. Their limited food stores are running out faster than makes sense. The world may prove much larger than any of them expected. Traitors may live in their midst. Split into four parts, this political fantasy novel mixes mystical magic with medieval politics and intrigue. Enter this otherly world to find out which men and women are worthy to be etched into the annals and become the heirs of history. Ooh, I love that so much. So I want to just like, I want to talk to you about the process of building this story and becoming an author um, in general. So we're just going to ask you lots of questions and I hope you enjoy this interview format. Yay! Um, so what would you say are some of the works of fiction, nonfiction, whatever that I assume mostly fiction, uh, that inspired you to write a story like in this genre and type? Yeah, definitely. Game of Thrones was the initial inspiration. I fell in love with Game of Thrones back in what was it like 2015, 2014, I think. And uh, I was inspired by all the wonderful characters and the world and the world building and the politics. I think that one of my favorite things about Game of Thrones was that the king's court it wasn't a place where the king was like, oh, I determined that you are a traitor and I will behead you. It's more like the king is lazy and doesn't want to be king. And so he's content to let these five or six guys rule the realm. And they're not really good guys. And uh, some of some of them care about their own self-interest and some of them care about uh, the people they love more than, you know, the people they're supposed to govern. And I was definitely inspired a lot by Game of Thrones. Um, but I, I was writing the first book for about five years before I really got a final draft down. And so in that intervening time, there uh, may have been a few other books that I started to draw inspiration from. <clears throat> Just thinking. I think that I read the Harry Potter novels while I was in the midst of those first drafts. And I love the way that J.K. Rowling put this mystery in each book that was completely unique to that book and that she made you really want to solve that mystery while having fun, whimsical things happen around you. Um, so that was one thing that I was inspired by. But also a... Uh, a big idea from the real world that kind of inspired the series arc. And it's the, the arc is of course begun in the first book, but the idea of the United Nations, I was always fascinated by the United Nations. And although it's kind of a joke now 
<laughs> that, <laughs> oh, that, are we allowed to say no, that? no, no. I was gonna, it's a joke now oh. that they that they can't get anything done, which is close oh, to calling yes, them it's a joke. A, it's become a meme for sure. Yeah, it's become a meme where it's uh, in one of my favorite TV shows, Veep. She says, "What you're going to call the UN to what? Get out of a parking ticket." <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> um, but I love the idea of what if the United Nations had kind of begun in the medieval times? Oh, and so I like that. That's kind of the that's kind of the series arc. So I was inspired by the United Nations, weirdly enough. And I think that that's as far as I'm aware i'm i'm pretty sure that's kind of a unique concept but i'm sure there are a hundred books i haven't read that have that sort of idea so i have a question yeah there's a huge swirling vortex of a thought out on well what i'm familiar with i'm sure it's out on other things too but out on potter fandom sites about how much J.K. Rowling knew in book one yeah. about book seven. And we've talked nothing. about this before. The answer is nothing. Okay, I'm so Rebecca glad you say that. says Rebecca says nothing. Okay, and I and I can do a lot of people feel no, she just wrote it and got going. In my head, I can buy that, but there's so much that she did with the first book to get to seven, I guess I can't believe she had no idea. I, I can believe that she didn't write everything in book one, thinking of what she'd do with it in seven. Yeah. I mean, I know we're not talking about Harry Potter, but, but I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine that like, she didn't know who Luna Lovegood was. Um Yeah. She didn't know what Horcruxes were, no matter what you say. But I do believe it, it makes total sense to me that she knew that Harry Potter, uh, spoilers for Harry Potter, <laughs> just so you can pause the video. <laughs> spoiler alert! Spoiler for the, alert! For the ending of Harry Potter. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do believe that, you know, she probably knew that Harry Potter would have to die and kind of come back to life. You know, yeah. she, I don't think she knew. What she may a, have had a very broad, like, I wonder, trailer. Yeah, that is what I want the ending to be. And then she crafted yeah. Horcruxes in the sixth book, um, kind of setting up that idea and most of the seventh book. But as far as me, I mean, what your question is, like, how so much? My question is, you've written three. The fourth one is 75% done. So... Are you finding as you go into you finish three, now you're into finishing four, are you finding that what you thought in one has just ballooned from there? Or are you trying to keep certain principles along the way? And then as others come in, oh, I this would work here, this would complement that. How mm -hmm. how are you? How how do you see this playing out um yeah the hard thing is for me is that i outlined the ballooning <laughs> and so <Fair. laughs> i knew that the ballooning yeah. would come i just couldn't comprehend how big the books would get <laughs> sure um so i did outline 
there to be ballooning. And, you know, some of the last chapters outlined are a big battle happens where every main character that you know is all fighting against one another who comes out alive yeah. sort of thing. But like, um, but as I get closer, you know, I, I haven't done much now, but as I start with the fifth book in the in the next few months, pro- probably after Christmas, I will uh, I'll plant seeds at the beginning of the book and I'll say, OK, I need to remember that for the final battle that I set up these two characters having a conflict. Mm-hmm. So I'll go to the outline and I'll write in part of the battle is that this person kills this person sort of thing. So so will you go back to book one and go, look, I had all these Look, there's there. Oh, I used an instrument to flip the lights off on the street. What can I do with that instrument at the end and tie that back? Like, yeah, I mean, there's definitely tricks of the trade that that make you feel (laughs) and I don't want to be like manipulative or anything, but I just I just think part of it is, yeah, you look at stuff that happened at the beginning of the series or the beginning of the book and you say okay did this come full circle uh, whether you outlined it or not if you haven't outlined it mm-hmm. outline it now um mm-hmm. preferably before you get to the chapter <laughs> and actually write it but um yes for sure there are things that i have in the outline that are going to bring things full circle from the first book. But there are, there is also room that I have left myself to say, okay, let me, let me give myself some time to figure out what needs to come full circle that I haven't written down yet. So, um, nice. There's definitely a mixture. Little things like that mean something to me, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether it's a series of books or just a single book that's been written on it. If I can see something toward the end, Con- completely unexpected, maybe not even a story arc. I, those to me like touch me emotionally. And so that's why I wondered about it's kind of the basis of the whole question, actually, just to see your how you thought about it. It's pretty cool. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the structure of the book. The This first book, A Nation from Nothing, is broken up into four parts, um, which are each about like eight to 11 chapters long or something like that. And uh, each part opens up with a diary entry from a person in the indistinct future. I'll tell you, it is many years after the fact, but it, uh, these diary entries are basically the colony's historian, just uh, casually reflecting back on things that happened. And I um, am, you know, taking excerpts from that as I go along uh, that usually have to do with things that happen in that part uh, or introduce characters that become really important in that part or something like that. So part two is called The Execution Mm -hmm. and part of... Yes, part of the diary entry refers to what will end up being the final chapter of the series. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. So there are some things that I that I purposely did that I knew I'd have to put in a few 
tidbits that I knew would directly relate to the you ending of the series. Yeah. yeah, but I I didn't do that a lot, especially in the first book. Um, you know, I listen to all sorts of uh, YouTubers and writers and editors and proofreaders and uh, influencers about book reviewers and stuff like that. And a lot of them do say you want to make your first book almost standalone. It's basically a standalone book that ends on a cliffhanger. And then like sequels, people have basically invested and said, I'm going to read this series. So then you can start uh, introducing things that really apply to future books mainly. But um, all in all, I tried to craft a uh, the first book in a way that was its own story with a couple cliffhangers at the end. But, you know, I really like that because I feel like it means that I can read it and think, okay, well, like I hate starting any, this is a TV show example, really, but I hate starting TV shows where there's only like one season or where it's like half a season. And I don't know if they're going to continue it or whatever. And I think part of that is because I want to have a lot of content to consume But at the same time, when it comes to books, they're often released so many years apart that it feels so like unsatisfying to end when it's all cliffhanger and like I don't Mm. have any resolution. And so I really like that thought process because I hate to bring back Harry Potter, but they do. She did a great job of this is a school year and this is the ending of this book and there's more to be done. But this is the ending of this book. Yeah. Well, and I feel like, I mean, think about some of the stuff we've already covered. We've talked about the Hunger Games, the first end of the Hunger Games. Like she had that kind of unsettled feeling of this isn't over, but it didn't mean that the story wasn't resolved. Like that was a standalone story in itself. Um, We've also talked about Twilight. And honestly, it was kind of the same way. If New Moon had never happened, Twilight could have totally been its own movie. At where oh that's I feel like that's actually I'm seeing what you're saying like a lot of people do that because like the cliffhanger was she wanted to be a vampire but really the story resolved like for what happened in that first book so way yeah. way to go and be such a professional I know I guess I know things <laughs> why don't you why don't you tell us Josiah about how you tackled the world building since, you know, mm-hmm. from everything, I noticed that the sun rises in the West and sets in the East. I mean, you even changed the, uh, the rotation of the, of the planet that they're on. <laughs> um, so tell us about how you went about developing that. Yeah, I think that there, there's a great Norm MacDonald joke where he asks this purposefully awful question and and your question is not like it but i <laughs> i <laughs> i think it's funny right. he says so uh where do you get your ideas from <laughs> and the guest is like i i don't they know come from my head? how to answer that yeah so um so where do ideas come? I, I, you know, just thinking about what would be cool and what would work. But the process of making the world is uh, long 
and you have to find the balance. I don't think I spent too long on it at the beginning. There's a lot of people who use world building as a crutch where they don't write because they're kind of scared to write and they give themselves the excuse of, well, I'm not, I don't have the world building all down. I was watching lectures from Brandon Sanderson a few years ago and he said something really smart that I wish I would have known at the beginning, but I have been using, um, for future books that, uh, pick three things that are important. So if the main trade exports of your nation are important, there's one thing. Are they important to the plot? So as far as my plots go, this is a very politics heavy series. It's a very I mean, the first book is called A Nation from Nothing. And the series arc is about a medieval UN of a bunch of different member states uh, that are a part of what we call the Segchia Collective. And Mm -hmm. in this collective, there's kingdoms, there's uh, rural communes that are kind of a confederacy. Uh, There are parliamentary semi-democracies. And uh, so (laughs) a big part of the world building for me is what is their form of government and how does it function? One, One of the big world building things for the first book is that the first chapter takes place at the very end of a war of a rebellion and it's the last battle of a rebellion so you you jump in and your main characters are like oh no the unholy king and his evil magicians found us we gotta run and so they they end up sailing away a lot of them a lot of them uh spoiler alert die but um you know your main characters are your main characters because they escape for the rest of the book so they escape to the new coast and um So basically, I had to map out the entire war that had happened before that. Even though you didn't have to write about it. Exactly. Before that first chapter, because especially throughout the first book, um, characters recall former battles and former events of the rebellion. And so I wanted the audience to be able to connect the dots in their head if they wanted to. Um, While, you know, it's not wholly necessary to the story besides like giving the characters backstories to like why they're here. Why are they part of the rebellion? Why are they heroes of the rebellion? Um, Mm -hmm. Why are all these people who don't agree with each other uh, all here together? And so I had to create this, huge document where I just wrote out not in pretty prose or anything. I just wrote out, this is exactly what happened in this order. This is the timeline of the war. So you kind of have to, for the world building, you kind of have to choose three ish things that are important to the plot and really focus on those, but also know when to stop. I think it's interesting you describing that seems so logical. And I remember researching for our Twilight recordings, a lot of reviewers busted the books up, especially the third and fourth book, because she seemed to just 
pull everything she had and throw it in a big bag. And like the first Mm -hmm. book and the second book, you developed Vampire World and what that was. You developed Werewolf, Were, Werewolf World. (laughs) 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 Woo, MST 3000. Shoot out for them. Uh, Shout out for them. (laughs) (laughs) You're killing it with English right now. Yeah, I, I know. I'm so adept at that. Okay. But the third and fourth book, there, so a lot of reviewers, my point, a lot of reviewers yeah. really busted up on that, that it was too, her writing is good, her, her her descriptions, her words are can be lovely and she can do that, but it seemed like she just pulled so much stuff in that it got messy and garbled, yeah. uh, you know. So I think that's interesting that you, that's a conscious choice you make to, to order what you're doing and make it make sense. So, um, I, you said something that made me think of something else actually, but in that world building process, I've read or heard some authors, I think I've actually mentioned this on an episode before, but where they basically say in the world building, you can pick one like weird thing you know, Mm. like aliens can live on earth or like, you know, time works backwards or whatever. But if you try to add too many weird things into the same story, it doesn't actually work. So would you say that, do you have any like one thing that's like, like, is it that magic exists? Cause I know you mentioned that, like, is there something that informs that? Or did you have to make choices really to like, not use too many of those kinds of things where you're trying to get the audience to suspend their disbelief? like too many times. How did you kind of make those decisions? I guess is my question. That is a really interesting question. And I am fascinated by how I will deal with it in the last book. (laughs) Um, (laughs) After, well, spoiler alert for after the first book, the the first book ends with the main characters kind of going in different directions and the world kind of opens up in book two and especially in book three. And so once you get to there, kind of every civilization you run into has one weird thing. And so I'm interested in them coming back together in the fifth book with all maybe their the weird broad, things together. <laughs> maybe the broad thing that like each civilization does have a weird thing. Like that is the weird thing. You know what yeah, I mean? Like I'm it's okay. That... Have them each having one thing. Exactly. In the first book, we really are with the, colony which is called Hrash Hill the colony I would say their weirdest thing is their naming conventions which I do love and that's one of the main comments I get from readers is that uh, it's the naming conventions are so not what they are in our world that it's a that it's difficult to read. And I totally hear that. I think people get used to it for the most part. And I, I don't know if there's some sort of OCD in me, uh, but the math of the language makes sense to me in a way that I think makes more sense than us just naming our kids, Jimmy and Willie. Um, so I I think it makes a lot more sense if you think about it for a second, but I definitely understand. I think that's the weird thing in the colony for the first book. In the, in the discussion of, of one weird thing or whatever in series like, uh, Star Trek, for instance, if you start 
nitpicking, you realize there are lots and lots and lots of weird things. Um, but they treat so many of them as if they're just, just a given, you know, there's space travel. It's faster than light travel. When we go to other planets, you know, we can, we can, you know, usually breathe the air, uh, at least in the first series. And mm-hmm. we all, we all can understand each other. Um, and I think that was one of the things that, you know, Hitchhiker, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy kind of made fun of <laughs> with the babblefish. Yeah. You know, we can all understand each other's language. This is the little device that does that. And Star Trek does the universal translator, which apparently is somehow subcutaneously in each person or whatever. But, um, I think sometimes the weird things can be a lot of weird things, but they all kind of fit in the same weird thing box. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. I think that that like that example is it's a weird thing box because ultimately the thing is that it's about space travel. Like we're in the future, like all of those things. But then if you try to add an element of like also werewolves suddenly exist, do you know what I mean? Like something that doesn't feel like it fits into that broader weird thing. Then you kind of throw people off Mm -hmm. and it's harder to suspend your disbelief. Yeah, I totally, I totally get that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I have just so many questions. Another one like related to just the story. We talk about how saving the cat is a common (laughs) thing that authors do at the beginning to like make you interested and want to support someone. So was there a save the cat moment at the beginning of the story where you try to get somebody to support a character or group of characters? Yeah, I actually reread the beginning of the book, uh, yesterday just in preparation. So I remembered all the details, but, um, I thought it was nice that our main character, Fal Hill, is our our main character for this book. He, during this uh, final battle of the rebellion that is the first chapter, he goes and uh, he has to go into hopeless odds against some kingsmen who have captured his wife, his sister, and his best friend. And And he says, I can't just let them be taken. And so he sacrifices himself to be like, I gotta, I'm gonna save you guys. And it is against impossible odds. Um, but his bravery ends up inspiring. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll spoil it. It's the first chapter, his bravery and self-sacrifice ends up inspiring one of the King's men to betray the king's men, the other king's men. And he's like, you know what? I'll be on the rebel's side. It helps that he's secretly a family member that the other king's men didn't realize was a family member of a rebel. But um, that's kind of one of the first save the cat moments where Fal Hill sacrifices himself to save. And then near the end of the chapter, they're trying to get all these rebels on the ships to sail away from the Kingsmen and the false priests. And he kind of takes a leadership position and says, Hey, that guy, Tramus is the face of the rebellion. And he, we know he is selfless. Drag him onto the ship. 
because he is worth more to us alive than in prison with the unholy king. So, you know, he's making he's making decisions that are not necessarily self-serving. They're either sacrificial or smart for the greater good. Those are two big moments from the first chapter. Nice. So the more we get into descriptive, um, into this topic of, of kind of the world building and the, the concept that you're going from, do you consider, do you think there is a right audience for the book? Mm. So this will air, say, um, plug, it, it airs before Christmas. Mm. So people could go and order it and we'll give you that information later, but. Um, is there a right I'll sign audience? it if you like. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Um, is there a right audience or do you? Yeah, there's a right audience Did you pigeonhole sure. an audience, I guess? Yeah, and you have to. That, no yeah. book is for everyone. You know, you have your Harry Potters who a lot of people love Harry Potter, but, you know, they're still not for everyone. But Heirs of History it definitely has a darker tone. So I know like uh, Rebecca and dad, Tim, you love nice bows wrapping things up. I do. You know, I watched all of Walking Dead. I love hopeless narratives, especially that, you know, come out on top in the end. But it can feel hopeless for a long time. So it is it's dark, especially the ending of the first book. Um but if you like fantasy that is light on magic but still has magic, heavier on the political intrigue and character interrelationships, uh, massive cast of characters, uh, ballooning world to explore, I think that this is uh, the book for you. I, I found that whenever older teenagers read the book um, – I've had every older teenager who has read the book has been like, I really love this and stuff like that. So I don't think it's quite YA. There's a little, you know, the characters are a little older than YA. They're they're in their they're hey, they're kind of my age. <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> but uh, there's there's definitely violence. There's not a lot of of sexual content. And if there is, it's it's more of a fade to black sort of stuff. I don't really want to. I don't really want to describe it as much as just acknowledge that it Imply. happened. Yeah. yeah. There's some inference in there, but, uh, I, I think it's appropriate for like 15, 16 year olds and up. And, um, I think that if you like, you know, if you like game of Thrones, but don't want as much of the R rated content, this is, you know, perfect. This is pretty, <laughs> pretty much perfect. PG to PG-13 Game of Thrones with a medieval UN thrown in. <laughs> Did you gotcha. use any cussies? Sorry, uh, that's a stupid word. We I use really, I really don't like cuss words. I think there's there's probably two or three in the book. Um, very climactic scenes that would be <laughs> that would be uh, lessened if they didn't use kinda, the strong language. Kind of how that's do you do mean. war without cursing? How do you do that's, war yeah. stories? Yeah. So I have another I have another question. How how important do you think it is as an author to be able to fully develop a character if you know that 
that character isn't going to survive, at least eventually mm-hmm. isn't going to survive. That's interesting. I'm still trying to figure out the balance. Um, even now when I'm writing, there's this natural inclination to super develop characters I know are going to die because I'm like, I need people to care about them. And uh, one trick that I've been using over the past year or so is, OK, develop all the characters as if they're going to die because <laughs> oh apparently because apparently that is what makes sense in my brain mm-hmm. uh you you got to care for them because they're gonna die and so i'm trying to lie to myself you want it to say, matter when they die yeah and so um one thing that's hard for me as a writer as opposed to reader because like as a reader i totally get this but when i'm writing something um it's hard for me to see the micro um, on the micro level, how an audience, how a reader would feel in this moment about a character um, mm-hmm. who like a main character who I, I know what their arc is. I know where they're headed. And so it still takes some thought processing for me to really remember, okay, but the audience doesn't know where they're going. I need to give the audience an idea of where they're going or give them an give them an idea of where I want them to think they're going so that I can trick yeah. them later. Uh, but as far as uh, killing characters, which there are many character deaths in the series. Um, spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> there are many. And there there's some main character deaths as well. Uh, so uh, look forward to that. But um yeah, I I do subscribe to the theory that um, it's the journey, not the destination. And so even if the yeah. destination is that they die, I still think the, the journey should be worthwhile. And I like making it. I like making it worthwhile. Get that. So, okay, on that topic, tell us about your character development process. So I actually had all my little my backstory is that I got to see a little bit of when you were doing this, you were kind of sharing it with me um, as just through the other work stuff that we were doing together. And so I got to see a little bit of how you did that. So can you explain what it was like to develop characters and like kind of your step, mm-hmm. not step by step, you don't have to go through the whole thing, but how you developed them. When I hear character development, I hear two things, making dynamic characters that are interesting at the beginning of your story with uh, either a backstory or a crazy quirk or a really interesting relationship with another character. And the second thing I hear when I hear character uh, development is character arcs. Where are they going? So making sure they're interesting in the beginning and making sure that their journey to the end changes them in an interesting way. And that is something I certainly had to think about actively, especially whenever I was writing first drafts of things. My characters tended to... um, I was more concerned with the plot than the characters. So that was something I definitely had to work on. Uh, But now I, I, it is one of the main questions I have in the outlining process of making sure that from the first chapter in this book to the last chapter, that there is a clear and interesting change driven by the decisions that they or main characters around them have made. And, um, 
I, w- I know, would say along yeah. that along that line, I have had some some issues at times in the past with off with books and or movies where the character something happens that just seems to come out of the blue um, mm-hmm. for the character. There, it, there's no good reason for it. It doesn't. It's like something just snapped in their brain. I understand that if you're dealing with a story, uh, you know, with mental mental health patients and things like that, and suddenly something just clicked. But for most people, there is a reason. It's other things around them or things that are developing in them, and I appreciate that because I've run into the opposite at times, and it was Mm -hmm. disconcerting to the reader. Yeah, one thing I've run into is uh, there are some twists. I mean, there's plenty of twists in the book, and some people... Have that, and I, I'll go, going forward writing other series. I'll take this into consideration. It's difficult to change what I've written, but I have had a couple people say, as soon as a twist happens, they want to know right away why it happened, and um, whether or not that's the right way to do it. I didn't uh, do it that way for the first book. For some of them, you know, there's some explanation for the big twists. Um, but I, I guess here, here's a thought. Um, one of the main characters is cheating on her husband. And you figure that out at the beginning of the book. And one of my friends who was reading it asked, really, we don't find out who the person she's cheating on with is right away. And me, I was like, oh, it's a mystery. You're supposed to, like, try and figure it out as sh- yeah. you see her through other people's eyes having different interactions with different people. Um, but in their head, they were like, oh, I wanted to know right away who it was. You know, it mm-hmm. was a twist. So uh, I've I've figured out that and I don't know. And again, I don't know if this is the right way to do it or not. But it's just a fact that I have had multiple people. um not love the fact that some twists are followed by mysteries, mm. which I, I think is in an interesting fact that I'll explore in the future with trying to separate twists from mysteries. Um, but for, Just for this one, the four of yeah. us and how different we are in the way that we read, I could imagine that most readers are very different. And so some would react to that negatively and some would think oh yeah that makes sense so tell us about your process and whatever difficulties or you know things that you had in asking an artist to render drawings of your characters um and did mm-hmm. that influence you as you continue to write cuz those drawings have now happened and you've still got some writing to do um, mm-hmm. did it change your mind about any of the characters Yes, uh, very exciting, these character drawings. I think that we're going to use the character drawings by Luke Shepard in some of the uh, marketing for this episode. And I will also be putting them up on my author Facebook, T. Josiah Haynes, author. But uh, yes, having the wonderful Luke Shepard draw uh, renderings in pencil of the five point of view characters in the book. Uh, there's Fowl Hill, who I mentioned, and he's kind of the main character with the most chapters, but a few chapters are given to uh, 
four other characters as well. There's Fal Hodden, his wife, and Balsit Hadin, a teenaged girl. And there's Labum. He's an older war hero. And there's Balan Hill, a young adult sailor man. And having the drawings of all of them, I find was very helpful in multiple ways. First of all, it helps me feel like I'm faking it less. I think everyone feels like they're uh, imposter syndrome. So it helped with some of my imposter syndrome. But also, I had been using uh, online images, like stock photo images of people that I would search for a few minutes, uh, tweaking the search terms and trying to find someone who basically matched what I was imagining for the character description and to have a completely original character that is only meant to be representing my character that I've created is not only surreal, but it's also helpful when trying to imagine them in different circumstances in the book. I think it helps, uh, it helps create more reality for me. And I think that that translates into the imagery in the scene becoming uh, stronger. But I think it's a, a cool thing for multiple reasons. Nice. Oh, they're, and, and they're the, really well the process, the process of asking, he was like, Hey, I, I do drawings and they're not very good. And I said, let me see them. And they were amazing. And I said, all right, can I commission some works of art for you? And I was able to, um, commission him <laughs> and and there were some edits and i was like hey can we do this can we make this person's lips smaller can we make this person's hair yeah. more wind swept uh, but it was it, it happened to be someone that i met in person instead of online and so we had a little bit of a personal relationship already and uh, so i imagine it would be different than hiring someone that you don't know, but the process was really easy and really fun. Do you think that building a following on say like Instagram and TikTok would help a lot, whether you're talking about wanting to get traditionally published or just in general marketing your book? Well, is that actually a good way to market? Yes. Uh, any marketing, getting your face out there, you need to be marketing to the right people. But I think that you can do that on basically any platform. YouTube and TikTok would be my first two suggestions for anyone. I have neither. I'm in the process of wanting both. Um, I, If I had to find the time, I think TikTok would be easier. And honestly, TikTok is so easy to go viral for a video. To make a video good. And TikTok, because of reasons we won't go into, is so good at catering the content to exactly what you want. And yeah, algorithmically, it's great. Algorithmically, TikTok will send me the people who want to read stuff like my book. So um, when I get a little more time, which is what you're not supposed to say, but the next marketing move I should make and I will make is making kind of a book TikTok, author TikTok. Gotcha. I, I recently finished uh, re- or listening to uh, The Man Who Invented Christmas about Charles Dickens, uh, the author of uh, A Christmas Carol. 
And I was fascinated by your connection to publishing world and all of that, because there's a lot of that in, in his book. And he was expecting from his publishers to market more, you know, to put it in all of the daily papers and things like that. And one of his books, he was very angry and really got upset with the publishers because they chose not to do that because they were having a little bit of a tiff. Uh, and so mm. they didn't market one of his books that became extremely popular later, uh, but they didn't really market it. It's, it's interesting that even in the infancy of, of the industry, uh, mm-hmm. that kind of thing was going on. So. Well, did you know that, and this was also in the infancy of the publishing industry, did you know, do you know The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, written by Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables as well? Um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame was originally a French book, and it was just the the Notre Dame of Paris is the French title, but the American publishers thought it was a little more dramatic to say the hunchback of Notre Dame. And Victor Hugo did not approve that title. And he was very disappointed that they went ahead and went with that title in America without his permission because they were allowed to. And that's what it's known by, right? Primarily. I mean, in the English speaking world, yeah, the hunchback of Notre Dame. Now that you have gotten through Oh goodness! You said you finished editing the third one, and you're you're starting to write the fourth one. I think is that seventy five percent through the fourth one. Yep. Um, so now that you're this far through, what do you think are your least and favorite parts of creating the book? From you know, from the writing, the outlining, to the marketing, or everything in between. What what's your what's your most favorite and least favorite? You can start with the least. <laughs> My least favorite is the money that you have to spend <laughs> to <laughs> get the book to out. Shocking to no one who knows you. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's one of those things where I don't know, I want to do this and so and I will make it so that I, I you know I want this to eventually be my main source of income or or a significant chunk of income so I'm willing to invest in this career so it's not really that big of a deal but it is you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars every time yeah. you want to you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars so um that's probably we were just talking about i asked part. you why you didn't have an audiobook yet and we talked about that a little bit just last week yeah where it was thousands like of the dollars yeah yeah that i need to yeah, thinking of starting a Kickstarter, but I really want a website <laughs> first before I do that. I mean, I thought a, I think a Kickstarter would be a fun idea where people could basically say, hey, uh, <laughs> it's almost like a pseudo presale. Hey, if you kickstart uh, my Kickstarter, if you support my Kickstarter for the price of an audiobook, you get an audiobook when it's done. <laughs> um, I thought that would be cool. So that's that's like still that in the works. That's still a possibility. Um, my favorite part. I mean, whenever I'm writing, whenever I'm by myself and I do, I write something or come up with an idea that's like, oh, and it's kind of a twist. It's surprising, but it makes perfect sense. Whenever those puzzle pieces come together, I'm okay. So I'm writing something in the fourth book where there was this, there was a character who is a problem child. Of a character, both in the narrative and for me, because 
logically speaking, people are going to start figuring out that he is a big criminal and should be arrested. But I was like, hmm, I haven't I you know, his story has kind of gone beyond what I had originally outlined it ballooned from there. But then there, there was a moment where, uh, Oh, it would make, it would make perfect sense for someone to secretly kill him right now. And then I don't have to write him like going to jail, which is not really an interesting plot. It's kind of an anticlimactic plot line for him to go down. And it creates a mystery as to wait, who killed him? Who who uh, benefits from him dying? And so those little moments where I surprise myself with a good idea <laughs> in the moment, <laughs> like, oh, nice. that's that's my favorite part by myself. But people reading and, and forming opinions about my book is uh, is a special experience in itself as well. Uh, you know, even if it's like, oh, I, I don't really know what this was about or, oh, I hated when this happened. Like even those sorts of things. I love when people get invested enough to have an opinion have about an opinion. the stories that I write. So Josiah, to yeah. build on that, how have book reviews that you've received up to this point altered your perception of your world, your process, the work as a whole? Um, how have you been, how have you taken those um, as, a, as a follow as you're moving on into other works? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the reviews from people who have read my book are elucidating because uh, one of the things that I run into is something that I think is obvious is not the most obvious thing. (laughs) And um, I don't mind talking about it with people and trying to in you know, without any condescension or any judgment or anything, be like, well, do you remember when this happened to, to try and make sense of it as a whole tapestry? But, um, it helps me to know what other people's minds are like. Uh, one of the ways that I'm different from half of readers, there's a, a general consensus in the writing and editing community that half of all readers are very visual They read something and they create a perfect image of it in their head. And the other half of readers don't care a lick about the visual. They're just kind of imagining shapes. They're imagining large plot points. And that's how I am. I don't really have the visual in my head when I'm reading. Um, I have it more so when I'm I'm forced myself to have it when I'm writing because I know I want to have that in there for the sake of the visual readers. And uh, hearing when people are talking about this or this and I'm like, Oh yeah, I I could have added more imagery here for people who read differently than I do. Uh, so really it's just opening up my perspective, opening up my, uh, viewpoint on how other people see the world and how other people see my world. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'll wait for more book reviews to form uh, a more solid opinion, but that's, that's where it started. It's just interesting to see how other people see things than I do. That is that is very interesting because uh, there are a couple of authors that I, that I've read in the past who take an amazing amount of time 
to build your perception of the room or the circumstance that they're in. Um, yeah, you talked about that, Tom Clancy. Yeah, when you move it, when you move it to a movie, okay, the set people took care of that twenty-five page description. Um, but some <laughs> authors are <clears throat> some authors are really really specific and picky about that kind of thing. So that's interesting to hear that there that there are basically two ways to look at that. I had not thought about that. Okay. Another like super nerdy question. What software did you use? Cause again, that was something you and I talked about a lot when you were in the process. And so were there softwares you used for different things? Like how does that work? Yeah, I used to use Google Docs when I was first writing this, and I think it was in 2021 when I switched over to Scrivener, which is a uh, software that is a one-time fee. It's only like 40-some dollars. You can find some discount codes for it to come down to like $36, and it's uh, better than Microsoft Word. It's a little more complicated than Microsoft Word. There's a lot more functionality than Microsoft Word, and so there's a few things like a bullet lists are not easy to do because they're so customizable. And so you have to know all the different ways you can customize it in order to effectively use bullet points. So I basically don't do bulleted lists in my outlines anymore. Uh, maybe a pseudo bulleted list, but for the most part, Scrivener is a great piece of software that is not only highly customizable in how you write it, in how you are able to write it, but how you can export it into, you can export it directly into an EPUB, into like an uh, uh, ebook format, or you can format it into, I, I don't do that, I do use a formatting software, uh, Atticus, to format it to get it ready for print, but you can do it through Scrivener. It's uh, not the easiest thing in the world, but it is possible. There's a lot of things in Scrivener that aren't the easiest thing in the world, but they're possible. There's a note card function that I use to look at character drawings and character stock photos to just make remind me of the feel of the characters. I have I have a big document in Scrivener where you can scroll through note cards of images of the characters, you know, stock photos that I've found. But um, yeah, one of the, my favorite things about Scrivener is that if you type, it types. If you type on your keyboard, it types on the screen. And Google Docs, once you get above, you know, depending on your computer, once you get above like twenty to 40,000 words, you type and it is lagging because it is all dependent on your internet, on your CPU, and on your browser speed. And uh, my, I mean, a novel has to be at least 40,000 words. And my first book is like 111,000 words, uh, which is... a a normal length for a fantasy book, but long for other genres. And it was unusable by the end. And so just the sheer fact that when I type on the keyboard, it types on the screen, that was enough to pay the $36 or whatever I got for the discount. Well, and, see, when um, you're feeling inspired and stuff, I can imagine that that is 
in, like they would be infuriating. Oh, it's a, oh it was infuriating. It was very uh, hampering to the creative process, but also to the logistical process of just trying to get words on a page or get words off a page onto a PDF or something. Uh, yes, Scrivener also has a dark mode. They also have a focus mode where you can put an image behind your screen. You, I haven't used the typewriter mode, but there's a version that there's a little mode where you can make typewriter sounds when you click. And <laughs> for oh. some people, well, you know well, that helps some them of us that get older. into the atmosphere. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I love Scrivener. I love the outlining features of Scrivener as well. I can see. Um, oh, instead of one long word document, it's split up into chapters for me. So I click on a chapter, and there's the document for the chapter, and it's all part of one project. Um, which I guess oh, is different cool. than Microsoft Word. I just haven't used Microsoft Word in years, so I kind of forget <laughs> what it's like now. Yeah. So if we'll, in saying things that aren't as though they were, if or when your book would be made into a film, ah, how would you cast leading roles? What, what thoughts? <laughs> Great question. I do think that the book format, especially the series format, would lend itself better to a TV show. Um, but mm. whether it were a TV it seems show, seems really complex in terms of yeah. transitioning to a single film or even a series. serialized. Yeah. Just as a side note, back when they were trying to make Game of Thrones into a film after Lord of the Rings was so successful, some people, and, and I know none of you guys have watched Game of Thrones, but, um, you know, there's the mother of dragons, Daenerys, who has a whole other plot line on the other side of the world for like half the show. And she is the main character over there. She barely interacts with the other characters in the series. And so some of the some of the production companies were like, we want to tell tell Daenerys's story in a movie. And George R. R. Martin, the author of Game of Thrones, was like, no, I'll wait until, you know, someone comes along and wants to do the whole story. Um, so, oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah, so yeah. I could see, I, I don't know, if someone came up with a good idea to how to s simplify it or streamline it into a film story, yeah, I'd be open to hearing that. But as the story is, if it would be mm -hmm. closely told to the book, story then it probably need to be a tv show but as far sure. as casting oh i've i've haven't i didn't have a lot of time to think but off the top of my head <laughs> this is kind of crazy but since it wouldn't be for a few years i would cast T timothy chalamet as fal hill <laughs> he's the so main good character and in a few years he'll be a little old because this character is is in his older 20s and um but he's the, the thing about foul hill is he's a leader he's not supposed to be like the most attractive guy and timothy chalamet you know he's attractive because all hollywood actors are attractive exactly. but he looks a little weird and wait for him to get a few years older in his 30s and then he'll look like a like a ganglier looking 28 year old i don't know uh all hollywood actors are not attractive <laughs> Come on. So seeing that you think uh, it would be uh, serialized is a better way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, what what kind of major changes? What oh, wait, but what casting. Oh, yeah. Finish. Go right ahead. 
Oh, Chalamet's say... just a full package. He can play all the characters. <laughs> Sorry, I know, right? <laughs> a one man show. Oh my gosh, what if what if Josiah's yeah of heirs of history? It's literally like one person, but it's mm-hmm. it's like the Medea, but <laughs> drama. <laughs> um, I was thinking for Falhaden, who's kind of the second main character, Fal, his wife. Uh. You know, I I don't know how far in the future it would be, so it's hard to find the right age. But have you guys ever run into Chloe Grace Moretz? No, but I'm going to look her up. I've seen her. She was on 30 Rock. She was on Kick A-Word. She was in the Carrie remake. Um, She strikes me as someone who can... Fallhaden is kind of the beautiful evil woman <laughs> she's not really evil she she is uh she's the character i relate most <laughs> to in the book i think those of i'm you glad you clarified read. first that she's not evil yeah those of you oh, i could no, see i yeah. could see her in that part except she'd yeah, have to dye her hair she'd have to dye her hair but um i like chloe grace moretz and for i mean for falhaden her being based on she's Especially by the end, she's kind of based on all of my worst evil, evilest fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> if I could just do whatever I wanted uh, without the love of God in my heart, the with with the hate of devil, the the devil in my heart, <laughs> what would I be like? And it ends up kind of being fall, not to spoil or anything, but uh, Falhaden ends up being little bit of a problematic character in a few She's ways. She's self-serving. <laughs> She's self-serving to a very high degree. You know, and I would also be, you know, I don't know if Millie Bobby Brown could uh, could play evil in that way. I know Chloe Grace Moretz is great at being uh, likable while being evil, but uh, Millie, Bro- Millie Bobby Brown might be a, an interesting Falhaden you remember her from Stranger Things? I now yeah. know that that's the one from Stranger Things. I did not know her name. <laughs> Falhaden is supposed to be extremely beautiful, but all actresses in Hollywood would be beautiful. So, I mean, that's not really important. All women are beautiful, Josiah. Yeah, on the just in kidding. the pictures, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, I am not kidding in that there is beauty <laughs> in everyone, but there's definitely differences in people's physical appearances. Well, I just okay, watched I'm digressing. A, I just can't. I just watched a friend's episode this morning where Joey's teaching an acting class, which in and of itself is a whole nother storyline. But he keeps making reference to the fact that he's trying to teach this soap opera acting class. When in truth, none of the he said, but it's just funny to me because none of you are pretty enough or attractive enough to oh. ever make it for a soap opera. <laughs> That's why you're taking this this class from a second rate actor at a. No, 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 he, he does not say. That. He's not self aware. <laughs> no, he's not. That's true. So sorry, Father Tim. What was that question? Oh, that's, from a, earlier? that's okay. So. Knowing that you think it would be better serialized as opposed to a movie, a shortened version, uh, what kind of major changes do you think you'd have to make to a, to adapt the book to to a visual medium? Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, let me try and give you a 20, 30 second outline of the how the book is structured. So part one 
is where the rebels are escaping the old country and they land on a new coast. It's called part one, the new coast. And they're kind of just establishing what kind of governance they're going to have. How are we going to be different from the homeland? What are the things we didn't like from the homeland? Um, And as all that's happening, there might be an assassination attempt on a hero of the rebellion. For some reason, it's a mystery as to who attempted that. Um, There might be some conflicts arising, but in part two, the execution, uh, they, uh, the internal conflicts of the colony are kind of coming to a head as the two or three different factions are really solidifying and they are starting to make moves against one another. Uh, then part three is where the Segia Collective comes in. And so they are the medieval UN, uh, spoiler alert, the colony sent out ambassadors in all directions to try to find new neighbors uh, bearing gifts and, uh, you know, a handshake for friendship. And so in part three, one of these ambassadors returns with literally a spoiler alert, literally the best case scenario for what an ambassador could bring back is a medieval UN who is willing to say, oh, you're having food problems. Here is more food than you could ever use for free. We're not going charge you anything we just want you to be a part of our collective the best case scenario is that the segchia is going to bring all of the food they ever need uh and then by the end of part three uh you the segchia realize that there's enough racists and people who don't want to be a part of their foreign collective uh for multiple reasons not just racism uh for security as well but um the, the Segchia leave at the end of part three. So the Segchia are there from the beginning to the end of part three. And then part four, after the Segchia are, uh, have gone, the factions escalate to maybe some murders of their political opponents. So as far as how we would adapt it to television, I think that the first chapter could make up most of your first episode. Um, although there's not really any single chapters that could make up a whole episode. Um, you'd probably expand some of the stuff, some of the stuff, um, for a TV show, because you're sitting down and you're watching it and you're going to watch the next 40 minutes. Um, you, you expect it to take 40 minutes to get good or to like have a whole plot. Whereas in a book, You need to hook the reader by the first sentence, first paragraph. So I think you can take more time before the final battle of the rebellion starts, for instance, in a TV show to set up these characters as like, oh, this is who we like. This is who is good and stuff like that. Nice. Nice. I've noticed that uh, part of your world building was to to discover or create the history of the people before Mm. the book starts Um, that that sounds a lot like, Hey, there's a prequel. If everything else is really (laughs) successful, we've got the outline of a prequel already done. Uh, Do do you think, Mm -hmm. do you think that's fairly common for authors of, of large things like this? I mean, some authors write a story, uh, but you're writing an epic um, and there are lots of authors that write epics. Do you think that's kind of what authors of epics do in developing that history? They already kind of have a prequel 
there. There are certainly different schools of thought. Um, You know, I wrote stuff in the history to give the current world color to give to make it dynamic, to make it feel lived in, to help motivate the characters, you know. People in real life are motivated by past events. You know, the the USA would be different if 9-11 hadn't happened. And so in my story, I tried to find 9-11 level events, uh, Nagasaki, Hiroshima level events. Uh, Yes, Mm -hmm. the pandemic level events that completely changed how people thought about the world around them. Now, in real history, those things didn't seem to happen as often. Uh, in the medieval era as they do in the modern era when everyone is so connected. But nevertheless, um, I didn't really have prequels in mind. And I I think that George R. R. Martin, who wrote Game of Thrones, who I keep coming back to <laughs> for better or for worse, I, I liked his perspective. He hasn't said everything about it, but one of the things he said is uh, there's a war that happens 17 years before the first book. That is integral to the plot. That is kind of the main story. Uh, it, it could be its own book's worth of story, and so many things happened in that war that are go that are now coming to fruition. But he has said, "I don't want to make a movie or a book about that because you're already going to know everything that matters." This, yeah, I, I <laughs> in flashbacks I certainly get the dropping people into the middle of a story and telling the important part of what happened mm-hmm. before without making it separate. Um, I know that I, I've always loved the Lord of the Rings uh, books. Mm-hmm. And uh, for Christmas one year, you got me the Silmarillion, which was really mm. difficult to get through. It, it's a yeah. tough read because it's the history of that world that another RR, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is all of that history, but it's um, it's really tough. And I know one of the mm-hmm. adaptations, uh, the Rings of Power, uh, on mm-hmm. on TV. I haven't been able to get into it very well because the the visual yeah. medium representation of it just seems strange and a bit scattered. So I guess I the prequel is not always a great thing. <laughs> yeah, so. it's it's beautiful. Like it, it's it visually, visually absolutely beautiful. beautiful. They and I really like Galadriel. There. Yeah, <laughs> not I mean, everyone likes okay. Galadriel. I like Galadriel, but it's still boring. Yeah, we watched a number of episodes, and we wanted to connect, and that's another reason I thought uh, I, a question that related to this that uh, just came to my mind. Several iconic series, book series, gone to film, whether I guess gone to film really, because that's that's kind of where we are. Whether they were teen fiction or young adult fiction or adult fiction, whatever, Lord of the Rings. And I think about a, a lot of the um, Chronicles of Narnia um, and then even Twilight, Hunger Games. I mean, even more serious less serious did you did have you looked at some of those things and thought oh i really want to achieve that in my voice although i did not get to read all of midnight sun which is the twilight i would call it a prequel 
but it's just the Twilight book told from Edward's perspective. And for me, I was like, I don't get the point of this. Why am I reading the same story? Um, mm. This this seems like uh, either a cash grab or a uh, yeah. self-indulgent fantasy that Stephanie Meyer was like, oh, I can do an, a personal writer's exercise to see, like, how would Edward react to everything that happened in the first book, Mm -hmm. but I'll publish it. I don't, I don't, I would never write that. That seems like Mm -hmm. a silly exercise. Whereas Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which I won't spoil here, but I did just finish reading. um, That seems like an incredibly worthwhile prequel to tell for multiple reasons. Not only is the character, the main character in Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, so different than Katniss Everdeen, uh, but it is, far enough in the past that the differences between the past and present are interesting, but it's close enough to the present of the hunger games trilogy where, um, the past directly affects the present, but you also don't know everything there is to know. Uh, like the thing that George R. R. Martin said about Mm -hmm. Robert's rebellion, the war that happened 17 years prior, you're going to know everything that happened that was important in Robert's rebellion. So I will never, uh, promote making a prequel because there would be no twists. There would be no climaxes. You would know Mm -hmm. everything that's coming. Um, so I think those, those are the differences to answer kind of the past two questions at once. What are some surprising insights that you would give to aspiring authors that they're probably not likely to read in just kind of your typical article or video on the topic? Well, first of all, don't write multiple points of view. It takes a million years to write the book. (laughs) Oh, my God. Because here, I'll I'll tell you real quick. Uh, I'm working on book Book three, I think, had the most point of view characters um, because a few of them died. (laughs) But um, (laughs) book three had 12 point of view characters um, because I'm a crazy person. And (laughs) I mean, that's just how the story I wanted the story to go. And I didn't super consider, oh, in order to tell a novel length, in order to reach 40,000 words, which is the minimum for a novel, Each of those characters was 12 divided by four. No. okay. so each character Mm. needs to have thirty five hundred words written about them to reach the length of a novel. Most of my chapters are longer than thirty five hundred words, you know? Yeah. And so um, back to my advice for authors, my surprising advice would be don't write more than two point of view characters. You need a main point of view character and maybe you have a counterpoint, whether it's their sidekick, their love interest, their Mm -hmm. villain. Uh, I would stick, especially for your first book, fewer than three, preferably one. You can have two points of view if it's really, really important, because part of the thing about points of view is each point of view has to have an arc per book. So it's not like you're using two people to tell the same story. The plot points around them might be happening to both of them, but each of them has to have a distinct character arc or it's not satisfying. So so that just takes up a lot more time than you might think. (laughs) Well, Josiah, 
We love you so much, obviously. Uh, Thank you for answering our questions and just like letting us into your world Mm -hmm. as you do this. Uh, Why don't you tell our listeners what is the best way to purchase a copy of your book, including how to purchase a signed copy if they'd be interested in that? Yes, of course. So it's available on Amazon, both the first and second book. The first book is A Nation from Nothing, and the second Heirs of History book is called Ruins on the River, both available on Amazon in ebook and physical. They should also be – I don't ever use, I think, Kindle Unlimited, but um, the the Kindle – you you sign up and there are certain books that you can just read as part mm-hmm. of your subscription and it, it is available on that. So I, th- I think it's Kindle Unlimited is what it's called. That It is available to read on Kindle Unlimited if you have that subscription. But you can also buy the copies in person from me if you uh, live around Nashville. If you um, – I also ship across the country. Um, it might be a little more expensive with shipping fees. But uh, – Uh, If you buy them in person or you bring them to me in person, I will gladly sign them. And uh, if you want to buy them in person, then maybe that is less money to Jeff Bezos and more money to the author. What's the best way for them to contact you? Well, they can always contact me at my author Facebook page, T. Josiah Haynes, T. Josiah Haynes hyphen author, uh, or they can... uh, Text or call me if they have my number or they can uh, comment on the book is better podcast. I think I have access to the messages for book is better podcast. If they wanted to message us there, as Josiah said, you can DM us. You can also email us. If you have any questions for him, feedback on this or any other episodes, our email address is book is better pod at gmail.com. You can also find us anywhere online, pretty much at book is better pod. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks, Thank everybody. You. Oh, I'm wildly talented. I have all sorts of prizes and accolades. I just don't brag about them because I'm not prideful. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs>